Hey y'all, welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast. As you know, this episode is going to be the continuation of our conversation with Sammy from last week. So we are going to be starting in the middle of chapter 12 as we find out about Nico's past. Whoop whoop. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okie dokie. Percy, Percy um, now like went to sleep because again, like we have, we have until the next night to, to, to rest and recuperate. He's dreaming about Nico. And this, this one's a doozy. This one's a really big moment. Nico is trying to remember things about the past. And in the process of doing so, he tries to summon his mom, who is dead, to try and figure out what happened. First pass, it doesn't work. Who shows up instead? But Bianca, who tells him, you know, don't do this. You remember what I told you about fatal flaws. This is dangerous. I think that you're gonna you're gonna see this and you're gonna hold a grudge, and that worries me. I don't think you should do this. He goes like, "I'm not a kid anymore. Go away." And instead, we get this scene. Who this scene from the 1940s in like a hotel lobby with who? But Maria D'Angelo, mother of Nico and Bianca. Hades had two kids with her. Two kids with her. That's how you know it's real. That's how you know it's real. Um, yes, she is serving us Morticia Adams' realness. We're getting 40s movie star glamour. We're getting veils and gloves and lace. That's an icon. That's an icon right there. (laughs) This is a queen who tells us, like, I know things are dangerous, but I'm not living in hell. I'm not moving in with you. (laughs) You might be hot enough to be baby daddy two times in a row, but, um, but you need to step up. You need to take care of these kids without me having to literally go to hell. Thanks. Period. We love this. Of all of the like mortal parents we've seen, I think like, you know, like we love Sally, but Maria is like next level. Fuck these people. You're going to do what I tell you to do. You're going to respect my wishes. You're going to take care of my children. And like actually gets away with it. Kind of. There are limits to it, obviously, as we find out. But like, we have to respect the game and the fearlessness that she has here. Not to mention this woman gave birth to two queer icons. Two queer icons. This is a queen. This is a queen. I also find it so interesting that whenever we see these, like, interactions between, like, the godly parents and, like, their children, like, with, like, Hermes and, like, Hades specifically, like, and even Poseidon and Sally, it seems like the gods actually really, like, are in love with these mortals, which is so interesting. Mm -hmm. It's, like... It always seems that way. And it's like, we're meant to like, we're meant to like feel bad or like empathize with them. But it's like, also you have like 10 other side pieces and an immortal partner. Like how much do we think this is genuine? Because every time it's like, oh yes, this, this woman was a queen among queens. Mm-hmm. Are they equally attached to all of their mortal partners? Like, is that a thing? Like, I think the answer is no. I think they like pick favorites. Like she, she's just one of the favorites. <laughs> I was, yeah, I think it depends on the God. Yeah. I think that like Hades is a sad boy and probably gets really all up <laughs> on these women and like gets obsessed with them. Zeus does not give it a second thought on the other hand. <laughs> Zeus. Does not care. Zeus doesn't love anyone. He loves himself. Agreed. Yes. But Hades, as we note here, is like, he's really emotionally worked out about this. He's desperate to try and protect the kids from Zeus because the great prophecy just came out. And he is convinced, not he, for good reason, like Zeus has basically given him a deadline of last week to turn over his children, basically to Zeus, for Zeus to like oversee and raise. 
Whereas, and Hades is rightly very concerned that he, that these kids will either be indoctrinated against him or that Zeus is going to basically try to murder them. Which, again, like, we think that there's good evidence for both of these beliefs. Hades is right to be concerned. Um, but uh, but Maria, our queen, is basically just saying, like, okay, you're worried. Do something about it. You're God. Do something about it that doesn't involve me living in hell or you taking children away from their mother. How about that? She's right to say this. She said figure She's right to out. say Zeus is un imbecile. <laughs> Iconic. I don't think anyone insults Zeus that directly, particularly anyone who is like not, this has no divinity. Um, and I, we love that for her. It didn't really work out for her, but I love this song. Play it again, play it louder. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, it ends up not working out for her because, you know, she goes to get her purse. Hades is like, okay, I'll try to figure things out. And Zeus does what? Zeus tries to murder all of them. Zeus sends a lightning bolt to destroy the entire hotel. He blows it up, trying to kill. And then along came Zeus. Oh my God. He's literally trying to kill this family. This family with two tiny children. He doesn't see them killing kids, obviously, because we meet Nico and Bianca later on, but he does murder Maria. And it's a big deal. Hades is, Hades is mad. Hades is yelling at Zeus. He's screaming. He's saying, I'll bring her back which, of course, he doesn't do because he's the god of the dead and he has to respect death. But instead, he's like, okay, take care of these kids. We're sending these away now since might as well send them to Lotus since they're growing up without their mom anyway. And who shows up but the Oracle. The Oracle Adelphi, who at this point is still alive, who is a young girl as she was, you know, in mythology and shows up and it's basically just like i i told you so like this is a prophecy that i made i'm sorry that it worked out this way but it's not my fault hades loses it hades is furious and curses her as revenge who does he curse does he curse zeus no no zeus who murdered his family no he curses a, a mortal girl right we have to remember the oracle even though she has powers is fundamentally a mortal girl also just a vessel like just a vessel like she had no control over this she was just a vessel for this knowledge about the future. Really an innocent bystander by all by all accounts. And Hades curses her to suffer, to become like a mummy that we see her becoming by like the modern day. That's high-key evil. This is high-key evil. He is taking out his revenge on her. Revenge, we're never a fan of retributive justice is not the way, but particularly when you're doing it to, uh, to a mortal who has no power. Terrible. We literally hate everyone in this moment. Everyone is doing the most and being the most evil. I just, it, it's always confused me how like she becomes a mummy or may, I guess maybe she doesn't become a mummy in this exact moment, but this is the 1940s mm -hmm. and she's like iconically a hippie, like wearing hippie clothing. So does she just not like become a mummy until 1970? I feel like maybe baby plot hole. They do say in the mythology that like the Oracle always has to be like a young girl. So like maybe after she's no longer like young, she like just becomes a mummy or something. I don't know. That would make sense for Greek mythology. Yeah. yeah. As soon as she is not vir virgin, virginal and young and virginal. Vir virginal? Yes. Yeah. That's not how it's pronounced. I just like <laughs> saying it that way. Virgin. I do enjoy pronouncing it that way as well. Um, <laughs> at this point though, the dream shifts. Before it shifts to Rachel, like Hades, basically like the mist disappears and Hades, it turns out, is in watching Nico see all of this. And he's like, do you get it now? Then we shift and we turn to Rachel. Rachel, who is on her super mega wealthy rich white family developer vacation in the Caribbean. She is, you know, she's having vision. She's writing Percy's name everywhere, which fine, I guess. Um, and she, 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 as it turns out, is freaking out about something that we don't totally understand. But like, you know, we, we've been hearing a lot about oracles recently, people who can see through the mist. I don't know. It seems like the pieces are coming together there. But she freaks out and is like, I need to get to New York. I need to give a message to Percy. And her dad is like, no. 
I don't want to do that. Um, this makes no sense. Literally, why we just got here? What are you talking about? No, no, nothing about this makes any sense. And Rachel, who is being really brave and sacrificing a lot, says that she is willing to go to a boarding school if she can get her father to charter a private plane back to New York City for them. Sammy, you have some no. thoughts about Rachel. Everything about this exchange frustrated me so deeply where we're supposed <laughs> to read no her as this like giving self-sacrificing pariah for bravely being willing to go to a very, very good boarding school, private school in the Northeast in exchange for like getting a private plane chartered for herself. Like I just- I would just like to clarify, I am neither a Rachel Stan, nor do I slander her. Like I honestly am kind of indifferent to her for most of the book. Like I completely agree. She is very annoying with this whole like, oh my God, it like sucks that I'm like so rich and like, it's so hard. Like my life's so boring. And like that, that whole thing is like very just like, did anyone ask? Like, nah. Anyway, truly, did not. <laughs> truly no no one asked um but like I just tend to sympathize a little bit with Rachel just because she is very like thrown into this like completely different world that she technically has no obligation towards which I do think she deserves some credit for that like she fully just goes into the deadly ass labyrinth like she just went okay sure I'll help you they literally could not have done it without her and she threw a hairbrush at a titan like it's like okay like props you know mm. like and kind of spoiler but like taking on this kind of like oracle role like obviously this is a very big deal like a very big commitment yes. she is basically mm. signing away the rest of her life if she survives because when she takes it on we don't know if she's gonna survive that doesn't always go well but like and, and even then like she doesn't even know if it's gonna go well but like she still is willing to do that and like i think the stupid like clarion ladies academy <laughs> that's dumb like appreciate her sacrifice on more like the oracle like those types of sacrifice i don't give a crap if she's going to yeah. like a boarding school but like i think in that way we should give her some props and also she knows what she wants like she writes her no her number on percy's hand like that is some big dick energy and yeah. i respect yeah. it i would not have the balls to do that like <laughs> i i respect it she's not aware of this whole history with annabeth so like why would she know and i also just mm. think like it's important to critically examine annabeth's relationship with Percy in the same level that we also critically exam Rachel and Percy because I feel like we are often way more critical of Rachel and Percy's relationship than we are with Annabeth and Percy's and don't get me wrong Percy Beth is absolutely the correct answer in this point <laughs> like in this situation like I am not I never would I say that Rachel <laughs> and Percy were the correct option but I think it's important to give it the same amount of attention in that respect. I, I cannot disagree with anything. I think these are excellent points. I, I just have no ethical problems with Rachel. I think that nothing she's doing is wrong. I just would not be friends with her. And that's something that I'm working through by myself a little bit, but also a little bit being like, you know, I, you know, we all know people who are like very, very privileged. And I think that we, we reserve the right to like take a pause and be like, do I want to associate with this person? Regardless of what responsibility they're taking on, to rectify their privilege. This is a good time to move on. We wake up and Prometheus is calling. There's a, a truce party coming to chat with the half-bloods. Uh, it's Prometheus who, again, is, I think, criminally portrayed in these books. Prometheus <laughs> is, is typically kind of like the one good guy, like, believes in, like, civilization, which could have been a really fun way of, like, 
you know, another yes. point towards like humanity and like human connection um, in this book. But instead, he looks like a magician, which Grover is scared of because, quote, magicians normally have bunnies and I hate bunnies. Oh, my God. I am so exhausted. I am so tired. <laughs> this is the last book. We don't have time for this. We got this other joke about him, like chewing up Louis the Sixteenth furniture. A little bit is fine, but come on. This is worse than Frozen 2 Olaf, which is what I wrote in the notes. I'm sorry. Do not. Do not denounce Frozen 2. I'm not two. denouncing Frozen 2. I'm That's specifically denouncing Olaf in Frozen 2 and specifically the musical number Olaf gets in Frozen 2. We will not be disparaging Frozen 2. No <laughs> part of it. Not, not even the Olaf, Olaf, Olaf No. Take it back. Oh my god. I, I'm retracting it. I just wanted to put it out there that every time Blackjack speaks, I just envision a newsie. I'm just gonna put it out there. <laughs> Yes! <laughs> we actually did. We did a couple readings of it on the last episode, which I'll be thrilled for you to hear, Sam. Yes. Hey, plus, kiss my cigar. Every single Pegasi sounds like a different newsy. Like, I stand oh. by <laughs> Anyway, Prometheus comes here to basically say, like, surrender and everything will be fine because I'm the titan of forethought. Mm-hmm. Prometheus chooses the titan side yep. in this book because he says, like, I see it as the wisest choice, not because of anything personal. It just seems like the right choice. And- it's basically like opportunism. Like he, he, he's like, I know they're going to win, so I'm going to pick them. Which, yeah, the reading of Prometheus is very different from like the like the soldier for like human advancement and creativity and exploration and challenging like the godly establishment. In this book, he's like, yeah, you know, he gives you the energy. I, we said this before the podcast of like a Elon Musk or like a Mark Zuckerberg, someone who is basically just like a craven opportunist out here. To stick it to people. They also just completely glossed over the millennia of torture that Zeus subjected him to. Like, you'd think that would be more of his reason for siding with the Titans. I mean, we can be critical of that. <laughs> we can look at this and be like, that probably definitely played a bigger factor in this decision than he's saying. It should it play a bigger role. We're gonna say, I don't know, just maybe thinking about this in the context of the gigantic freaking election that we're coming up on here, if you're listening in the United States. Yes. Which I know most of you are. Don't do that. Like, don't. Don't just choose the side that you think is going to win. Because then if you get in with them and you donate all your money to them, even if you're a Broadway theater organization and you just like donate all your money to the side that you think is going to win, then maybe like they'll be nice to you and not tax you. Let's not do that, especially if you house Hamilton in your theaters. Let's not. Period. Great. Pick sides for good reason. Part of the reason why he gives this this tech comparison in this area is because he his offer is basically like if you surrender if you let me be in control then i'll give you something that'll advance you which to me sounds literally exactly like what spacex is or like facebook (laughs) saying like you know like if you let me wreak a little havoc on you and just like have complete authority over the way that you organize your lives i'll give you something neat you know like you'll have something cool that'll like make your lives a little bit more interesting so you should do it. You should agree and you should let me be in charge of everything with no meaningful checks. <laughs> there are like a few other like notes that we have in here. They come with a hyperbean giant who's basically like a child who gives this Tyson energy. He has like giant plushies on his belt, which is something that they mention, but also kind of don't follow up on because like uh, no, throughout the rest of the book, we like kill lots of hyperbean giants. That's something I want to sit with for a little bit longer. I think like the second series, like Heroes of Olympus does dive in much deeper on the whole issue of what monsters can we kill beyond just we don't kill Tyson, but... Basically, everyone else, we're, we're good to kill. You know, like, we, we're going to complicate that a little bit more. But this is another reminder that, hmm, maybe that's a little whack. Even, even like, when Percy is, like, doing his, like, whirling and twirling, like, through the monsters. Yeah. Like, he has a moment of hesitation with a hellhound. Like, yes. and he's like, this isn't Mrs. O'Leary. And but then like, he's like, nah, yeah, I'll kill it anyway. Yeah, it's just, like, <laughs> whirling and twirling. <laughs> that, is, that is how I envision the scene, just, like, 
helicopter. The whole paragraph of just whirling and twirling. You're so right. Because <laughs> he's like, nothing hits me. Militarized person. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Very true. Glad we're all on the same page. Yeah, we, we get another, like, little aside with Percy yelling at Ethan Nakamura, who <laughs> he now basically has a full-fledged rivalry with. Appropriately, the childhood nemesis has become Percy's nemesis. And Ethan gives an inter- gives an interesting set of remarks here where he's starting to differentiate himself from Luke. Like, Luke at this point is increasingly, as Sammy said, angry about his father and sort of consumed by that, afraid. He has no real, like, clear moral judgment about this war anymore, whereas Ethan here has, like, a very clear perspective about revenge and equity. Two constructs that we, I think, on this podcast would all agree are very separable, and we do not necessarily or even at all associate as being, you know, connected to each other. But they are things that he associates in unison as, like, a joint project of nemesis that he will tear down those who currently have everything that he will like exact revenge upon them and that is the the way to to achieve equity and that he was so willing to do this he sacrificed his eye to his mother in order to to tip the power balance that's wild it's also very interesting because his relationship with his mother is very different from all the relationships we've seen with other people's godly parents seems like he has a yes. good dialogue with her but also that she I've, just sort of treats him as like a co-worker or something like it's a little weird i've always been confused by that and i think it's it's a, it's a little bit asian i don't know she just like kind of <laughs> it's treats there. him it's like an adult there. all the time i don't know asian honestly i could kind of see it like, i think we definitely need to challenge the racial politics of rick being like there's one asian and they're the one child of nemesis I think it's out there. I don't think we need to say more about that. <laughs> I always kind of explained away like how he knew where Percy's weak spot was is probably because Nemesis like told him because like it gives him the ability yeah. to like change the tides of like or like tip the scale. I kind of assumed that it was like a freaky ass power where like if there was something that he could do in a moment that would change oh. that would like help him enact revenge, then he would just be granted the wisdom to know how to do it. He doesn't know even, it at like, first though, without like, knowing. At, at this yeah. stage in the game, like it's, he doesn't actually know where Percy's weak spot is. Although he, of course, spoiler, has an does inkling. figure it out. And, like, has an inkling and narrows it down. But Prometheus, as an, in an attempt to convince Percy after this, like, brief, very um, infuriating for Percy aside with Ethan Nakamura, is like, oh, I know what's going to convince you. It's going to be a vision about how Luke got screwed over by Hermes. And so he shows him a vision of Hermes and Luke meeting each other. You know, this is this is when Luke is 14. They're tense. They're arguing. This is the only time that they've ever talked. Up until this point and also after this point, they're basically arguing about abandonment. Luke feels scared and alone because a 14-year-old who ran away from home and doesn't think that, you know, his support system is adequate, which is true, it is not. Although we, of course, want to double down on our rejection of ableism and saying that people who have mental illnesses can absolutely be qualified and loving parents and contributing members to society. They just need help from people in power. Like, I don't know, gods or other similar figures in the context of the U.S., probably the mental health care system. Anyway... Luke is really upset. It's interesting because, like, we, it, it seems clear to us that Hermes cares, but also just, like, does not do anything about that. Like, he cares, but it's like, this is just, like, the way it goes. This is the way it has to be. The ancient laws say so. I don't know. Like, when I was young, I was kind of on my own for a lot, and I turned out great. So we're going to try that for you. And, and yeah, I think it's going to be good. I love when Luke says it while thinking, but I'm not a god. Like- <laughs> <laughs> Truly, yes. I think, like, this is such a crystallizing conversation for us on this divide because, like, we've all, it's been sort of, unclear to us in the past like a lot of the issue in the past has been like do the gods even think about their kids right and here we're getting an example of like sometimes they don't but sometimes they really do like Hermes clearly is very obsessed with like Luke's fortunes and wants him to like live a good life his position is basically just that he can't do anything about it and that like these ancient laws say that he can't 
Okay, but also it grinds my gears when he's like, gods must not interfere directly in mortal affairs. But y'all having babies with them, so which is it? Like, Period! I'm confused. But you're having babies with them. If you can't help them, then don't well, have the baby. Yeah, it's all yes. up in the affairs. All there is the also, like, there. like, this just crystallized for me when you're reading this. I think we sort of had this conversation, but just to make it crystal clear, I've been thinking about this a lot in the wake of, like, the, the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. Oh, everything about this moment gives me any Coney Barrett confirmation hearings is gonna make no sense if you're listening like more than a few weeks into the future but like Hermes well, I see let's hope people don't forget that fast. I hope they don't let's, Hermes is giving me like Diane maybe. Feinstein energy I don't know if anyone else agrees with this but he's sort of like the person who's here being like I disagree with what's happening but also I like refuse to do anything and challenge literally any precedents to help people because I don't know that's just not what we're used to doing can we also what can so absolutely wrong. How Hermes is just terrible with like, he's like, oh, but something terrible, dot, dot, dot. I can't say. Like, literally, yes. like, why are you so bad? Like, he does that multiple times throughout the scene. Like, yes. gives Luke like a tidbit of like how terrible his future is going to be. And it's like, I shouldn't have said it. Like, literally, get yes. out of here. Like, Hermes is that girl at the sleepover who's like, oh. Like, you wouldn't get it. Like, shut up. You can't just I have tea, it. but... Why would you bring it up <laughs> in the first place? You are yes. scarring this child, like... Literally, God, he should not have so said annoyed. anything. And this is what frustrates Percy the most, is he's, like, being, like, Hermes knew. Hermes knew this whole time that Luke would turn evil, and he did nothing. And that's unforgivable. And Percy's right. It is unforgivable. Hermes should have gotten his shit together. It seems like the ancient laws... I think some people read them as, like, magic. Like, the ancient laws are, like literally restrictions on the god's powers but it seems increasingly like the evidence is that that's not true the ancient laws are precedents that they are guidelines that the gods have set for themselves out of habit um that they can change and that is something that's going to be very important for us as we move forward it's also clear to us that like hermes knows what's up with may and like also like is simultaneously like taking care of her interesting and neat and like shows a certain level of care but also doesn't like broadly do anything about it and with that Percy gets pulled out. Ethan Nakamura gives one more hateful look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Basically, like, Prometheus is out here being like, clearly Hermes is in the wrong here, so why do you want to support the gods? Also, sidebar, do you think your father knows what's happening to you? Clearly, Poseidon knows that, Haiki, maybe you're going to die, and he knew this whole time. And what about that, Percy? And Percy's sort of like, oh, damn. Oh, shit. That's... That's a little real for me because I don't want to die. Um, and maybe my dad was was wrong. And so Prometheus gives him as a parting gift, Pandora's Pithos. I think I'm saying that correctly. It is a storage jar, as Prometheus is careful to say. He, he like, again, like, gives us a very Silicon Valley reading of the myth of Pandora. When I read the myth of Pandora, I read it through primarily, like, a gender-critical power lens. Yeah, we spoke about it in the classics episode. We have spoken about it, yes. Episode. Pandora is, like, being exploited and blamed because she is a woman and because she's in a position of relative non-power to the gods who are, like, absolutely controlling her actions and setting her up to fail. Very, like, Eve with the apple type of deal. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly the same. Whereas Prometheus, his reading of this, is very different and very telling, where he's basically saying, like, you know, this is the gods telling you that curiosity is bad. And I'm telling you that curiosity is an unmitigated good, and you should always do it. Which, of course, like, curiosity is good, but we should have limits on that, and that's maybe not the primary lens through which we want to read this map. But Prometheus gives a little retelling and says, you know, this is always available to you. This is basically your white flag, Percy. If you want, you can always surrender at any point, and we'll stop, like, killing you and your friends and your family and your city 
And that'll be that. Kronos will take over, you'll surrender, and maybe things will be good for you, but also famously, the Titans don't hold up their treaties. Also famously, the gods do not hold up their treaties either, just as America does not. It was just Indigenous People's Day. Anyway, I think that's enough that we want to say about that. Prometheus is heading out. Prometheus is out, and that's that. Great. What a freaking loaded chapter, like, honestly. What an adventure. That brings us to a basically, like, short little debrief on this. Talia and Percy have a chat, which we love, because Talia, as much as she lives in all of our heads all the time, constantly, as an icon, forever and always, doesn't actually have that many lines, but this is one of them. Talia shows up here in true Avatar Kyoshi style and says, basically, like, sometimes people are too far gone. Sometimes you need to cut your losses. You can't start feeling sorry for Luke. We all, she literally says, we all have tough things to deal with. She's not wrong. She, they literally have all had tough things to deal with. Tolly was in a very similar situation, Luke, where her mother was not able to parent her and ran away and then literally was like Tolly murdered was by a pack of monsters. A turned into a tree. Yes, Tolly has also been through a lot and did not react to that by saying, you know, like I'm going to have a giant freak out about my lack of parental guidance. She literally just became like a light bitch and then yes. moved on and continued doing good for the world. Which is the best that we can hope for she any of us, it into any like of ourselves. A love of Green Day. She, she's telling this to Percy, and she's also saying, like, I'm also low-key worried about this in the context of Annabeth, probably more than you, because Luke was not your older brother, father figure, entire family. But I'm just saying, so we're all on the same page here. You can't keep giving him second chances. Like, I want to believe in reform, but also if it comes down to it, you can't let everybody die in, in the heat of the moment if he's continually going to do violence upon everyone in America. Fair. Points were made. Percy then has a little dream. Again, we have the dreams in this book are colossal because there's so many subplots we're trying to focus on outside of where Percy is. He's just dreaming everything. Oh my God. Truly, like these dreams have five different subsections. Anyway, in this dream, we get the signs yep. in trouble. Tyson has to rise to the occasion and lead a charge of Cyclopses from the forges with the battle cry of peanut butter. Iconic! Peanut Iconic! Butter. See, like, this is, this is the childish humor I want. I want four peanut butter. I don't want I'm afraid of magicians because of their bunnies. Take notes. Anyway. Um. The, the dream switches and Ethan uh, is being called to talk to Cronus again. Why? I don't understand. Um, Cronus is like, so how was your little chat? Like, how did it go? I just see Luke, like, stirring a, like, a teacup and is like, so, like, did it go well? Like, do you think it went well? This is the most ambiguously gay villain moment of the book. And I love that. Cronus is like, so... Annabeth threw herself on a knife after Percy became invulnerable, so that's kind of weird. Maybe you almost found his his weak spot, huh? Do you want to share? Do you want to cough up? And Ethan's like, I don't know. I didn't figure it out. It was kind of a slash. It could have been anywhere. And Cronus is like, hmm, okay. That's something for you to think about. But also, and this is very critical, during this conversation, there's, there's like a little lapse. Cronus, Cronus like has some weak coughs. His eyes change color because, of course, with Rick Riordan, it's all about Eyes changing from different shades of light blue to light gold to light green. But those eyes change and we're like, oh, Luke is still in there. Luke is still in there. And now Percy needs to report this to Annabeth, maybe, or conceal it. But this is going to cause tension for them. And that's something we have to look forward to. So then the, the new dream shifts to what we're finally getting like, oh, okay, the, in case you didn't suspect, um, May Castellan had the gift of sight. Not only could she see through the mist, but she was like superior um, in the in the way that Rachel is, or maybe almost in the way that Rachel is. So she said, I'm going to become the new Oracle because I know that this is something that 
y'all are in need of and like i have been blessed and hermes is freaked out chiron is freaked yes. out everyone doesn't want her to do this um but she's like no i i got this and she's wonderful and confident and we love her and like i wish that i wish better mm-hmm. for her but basically she they she's at camp half-blood she goes into the big house and basically shit goes awry. Like green light is like coming out from the house. You know, that scene in Hocus Pocus, like towards the end yes. when like they yes, mess yes. up um, and they kept the book. Yeah, it's like that. The light is shining through the windows, but she really just wanted to do something good. And we are led to believe this is how um, she came to her current state of being yes. sad. We also probably want to highlight that there are a lot of parallels, not just to, like partially to Rachel and also to Sally. Sally, Percy's mom, who can also see better than most people. And May is also described in this moment as like being full of life and energizing everyone and generally like being sort of the warm person and giving mother that we know yeah. Sally to be. Highlighting this yeah. this notion of like Luke as like a dark mirror to Percy, someone who could have had Percy's life, who shares a lot of similarities with Percy, leading up to this final battle. But, you know, Luke had some critical things go awry and reacted to those critical things poorly. And and that's how we ended up with the situation that we're in now. I love that Rick highlights all of these like women that the male gods have fallen for that are just such queens and just so like they don't care about them being a god. They'll just be she she literally told Hermes, I got it back off like yes this is who the gods they literally go they don't for. listen like, to them and it's so women, iconic <laughs> these strong iconic women that know what they want they're not gonna take anything even from a god like such powerful energy and we love it there is like a quick little aside also from chiron that ah is like a little gross that we probably should mention which is that chiron is like you know there's like several reasons to be afraid of this one of them is that you know like the oracle turned into a mummy, which is bad and probably means that something has gone wrong there. Maybe let's investigate that. But also I'm not going to do anything about that because I'm Chiron and I stay out of the fray. What um, does he do? But um, also Chiron's like, this has never happened with a woman who, you know, is not a maiden before. What does that mean? It means that she's a mother and she's had sex and that that's not the kind of person who can be a vessel for this kind of power. The, the, like, the oracle critically is like a manifestation of Apollo's spirit, right? So there's like a level in which Apollo is basically responsible for this and saying, like, this is my criteria. Apollo was like, you have to be a virgin in order for you to become my vessel. <laughs> and May was yeah. like, literally, no. Ew. It's quite gross. We and don't then like it didn't it. work. And this also, like, to reach, to circle back on the Percy Rachel, did they or did they not? They did not. I think this is more evidence for they did they not. We didn't need more evidence, but we we have it. Yeah, because anyway. otherwise it wouldn't have worked. Yep, okay. Otherwise Great. it wouldn't have worked because Apollo's a misogynist. Um, yep. Yes. Um, anyway, we wake up. The army is here. And we have the giant battle in Central Park, which, in my opinion, is, like, the most epic part of this book. I, I don't know. Maybe that's a popular opinion. Maybe we all agree on that. But I really like the Williamsburg Bridge one because I love the Williamsburg Bridge. But that's the reservoir all scene also iconic. reminiscent of, like, the original Avengers, like, in New York, like, all, like, all of, like, yes. the buildings on fire. Like, that's what I think of. But it's, like, more. But, like, like the more, Avengers, yeah. like, it's in all these, like, faceless, like, like the, the Avengers, it's, like, it's in New York because there's, like, skyscrapers and shit. But, like, they don't go to, like, literal landmarks in New York. Like, yeah. in this version, like, every time I go to the reservoir, all I can think about is, like, 
Percy and his hurricane fighting Hyperion on the surface of it, um, wow. which is which is what happens. By the anyway, way, um, <laughs> yeah, we were gonna say I was gonna say that's that's what makes this battle so epic. In addition to like all of the nature spirits that like Grover has been working on like for the past yes. summer and stuff. Um, Last fighting stand in this of the nature battle. spirits. Percy is literally like one on one facing the Titan Hyperion, and all like in his like super powered state, literally makes a hurricane and. If we had oh time, I would read this. But like, I swear to God, this is the coolest part of this book. It's so good. It's so important. It's so powerful. He came from blowing up a toilet in Clarice's face to literally making a personal hurricane. And this payoff would not have happened if we didn't take this long of a time building up Percy's powers. Yes. But also, like, when he, they're talking about the hurricane that he's creating and there's, like, lightning, I'm like, okay, then what is Zeus for? Like, if he can create his own lightning... Nothing. Also, nothing. like, I feel like they nothing really jipped Talia on this. Like, Talia's only given Thunderbolts. Like, she should be able to do more than this. She is literally one of the big three. How does Percy have, like, water powers, hurricane powers, like, li- like all of these other things? And then, like, Talia has, like, lightning bolts. Like, they really jipped her on that one. Lightning bolts are cool. I'm not going to short trip lightning bolts. but now bolts. Percy can make They're lightning bolts, too. So she's not even that special now. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that Zeus was like, oh, I'm having a daughter. Ew. Have to make sure that she... <laughs> isn't cool yeah and took away most of her powers that's my personal there is sexism here because nico and jason who are other like big three kids jason we'll meet later obviously but like yeah they like have a lot more power than basically like the female counterparts in all accounts like bianca we don't get the same level of op that we get with nico um hazel we don't get the same level of op that we get with nico in my opinion okay, like she gets I some like witch hazel. powers but that's <laughs> basically independent i love hazel but her like main powers are basically being a witch and that has nothing to do with pluto we have to that's talk just about her this another on time. her own we can't get into this right yes now. their sexism is all i'm saying you're so correct her but this is like the peak of percy like in my view like being overpowered like i guess there's some stuff when he's like literally in tartarus but like for for the most part, this is, like, the most overpowered he gets. He destroys Hyperion, who is, by all accounts, the second most powerful titan after Atlas, more powerful than Kronos. He defeats Hyperion basically on his own by creating his own hurricane! Yeah, and then he literally turns Hyperion into a tree. Let's have more trees. At this point, we get the, the devastating surprise, which is... This is what I was alluding to earlier. It's a giant pink flying pig who is the only monster in my view. Like a lot of the monsters are either gendered very male or like not gendered. This is the only monster we get that's very aggressively gendered female. It's, they say like straight off the go, like it's a female pig. In case you were wondering, it's pink everywhere. It has quote, pink flamingo wings. (sighs) Irritating. It's kind of treated as like both simultaneously a very powerful and dangerous threat, but also kind of a joke at the same time. Which is interesting as basically like the only female monster that we get. Um, and basically like Percy's whole thing with this is that he he deals with it on his own and he activates iconic specific famous statues across New York to do this. Like I'm not personally familiar with like the other statues that get activated in New York across this book. But these ones, I'm you know, like these are the most iconic ones. Mm-hmm. This is like Hermes on top of Grand Central. Super iconic. And then the lines outside of the New York Public Library main branch yep, yep, at like yep, yep, yep. Bryant Park iconic 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 statues that take down this monster i just i just have to say that like on to sandy's point the femininity of this monster truly gives me like horn like i just have to say horny energy like the way that it's described is so aggressive in the gendering of it and then also percy like as it's being destroyed by these statues says quote i hoped it got to meet the bore of its dreams down in tartarus 
Girl, it's a pig! Girl, what are you talking about? You've spent this whole time killing random monsters, and when you get the one female one... This reminds me, you're also in Pausa, I'm killing. There are two female monsters, and they are both monsters that get us to think exclusively about sex. Why is he like this? Yeah, I, I'm, I literally the never would have thought about that, but I'm glad that you did, Carter, and I'm glad now I have to think about it that. It always bugged me. Did this not bug you? When I was, like, in fourth grade, reading this on, like, the plane ride, all I could think was, like, why would he say this? And now it makes sense. Now it fits together. He's a 15-year-old boy. It's, like, issue after issue, monster after monster. Percy and Annabeth are fighting because, of course, Annabeth is a queen and is somehow back on her feet. Stan. They're fighting together. They're fighting together, back to back, yet again. Um, but they're closing in on the Empire State Building, which is bad, 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 bad. Which also is like kind of a ways, honestly, from Central Park all the way to the Empire State Building. Yeah, they covered ground. And also from like Percy going from like Bryant Park to Empire State Building, that's like closer, but like it's a lot. They're well, still kind of far. It's the battle yeah. of Midtown. And so, of course, who comes to save us? Literally, this is bad. Like it's bad, bad, bad. Like we are backed up mm-hmm. to the Empire State Building. And who shows up but, of course, the party ponies. And not just any party ponies. Um, the Hawaii chapter of the party ponies has arrived. <laughs> quote, Hawaii owns your faces. End quote. We love inclusion <laughs> slash imperialism because <laughs> we all know Hawaii's not supposed to be part of the U.S. Yeah. Um, Where would the not. party ponies be in Hawaii? Would they be? Yeah, that's also lot? confusing. How do they get <laughs> to the rest of them? Where are they in Hawaii and how? Did, did they, like, run from Hawaii to New York? They have magical Did they take a plane? They have magical they speed powers, remember? In Waikiki in some bar that no one goes into, one of those like random bars at the fringes of Waikiki, that's where they would be. I love thinking about like for a moment like the whole flame of western civilization thing. Like when did myth- like Greek mythological creatures then appear in Hawaii? Was it in like 19 in the 1950s with statehood? Or was it like when the missionaries first stepped down and killed everyone with their diseases? I feel like it's, like, with, like, annexation, maybe. Complicated, because, like, it's a little bit, like, when the U.S. has, like, territorial expansion to other places, but it's also weirdly, like, why are the Beatles kids of the gods? That's kind of weird. I thought the scene was supposed to be in the U.S. Is it just everywhere that there's empire? Because that also seems like maybe a plausible explanation. One of my favorite lines in the book, quote, the Lord of Time disappeared under a giant blue butt. But yeah, basically, they're all back. Chiron has finally done something maybe useful. And now it's time for Chiron to debrief again, because we have to do this every time Chiron shows up. The gods are getting smashed. The gods are getting totally yeah, smashed. Yeah, Dionysus got blown into an abandoned coal mine in Appalachia because we need a place-based reference for where they are and how badly they're doing. Yeah, Typhon. I don't know if it's Typhon or Typhoon. I feel like I've been saying Typhon and you've been saying Typhoon. Also, because Typhoon has, like, Japanese roots. So, like, I feel like it would be Typhon. Yes. Yeah. That's- it's spelled with one O. I'm just pronouncing it Typhoon because, like... Yes, Japanese brutes. <laughs> yes, Pacific names for, for large tropical storms. I think you're right, though. And then we get a chat with Percival again, because we need to have one of these very frequently in this book so we can ramp it up. Percy says, quote, I had a bad feeling this might be her last chance to talk, and I felt like there were a million things I hadn't told her. That's tense. Let's celebrate that. They basically like have a conversation about facing Luke, because what else would they talk about? Percy brings up Tolly's warning. Um, of two Annabeth specifically, and it's like, you know, Tali thinks you won't be able to face him. And Annabeth is like, maybe she's right. I don't know. Um, and Percy also then has to mention his, his dream about like Luke resisting Kronos and like maybe still being a person in the air, you know, who can be saved and have agency, which honestly, I wasn't sure he was going to do that the first time we read this through. And this is important that he does 
that he is forthright with that information. So, so Annabeth like listens to this and like, you can tell like, you know, like she, her mind's going, she's like, okay, so there is a possibility. Maybe we haven't exhausted that option. There's a level in which that's important. Diplomacy is very good. We, we want to exhaust nonviolence because we don't believe in murdering people. But like, Percy is just sort of like in response to that, like, I know this gave you hope, but I'm just going to turn right back around and remind you, like, Lucas betrayed you so many times. I don't want him to hurt you anymore. Which, wow, like, that's that's such an emotionally charged way of phrasing that. <laughs> and I would argue emotionally manipulative. But Annabeth's response is, quote, and you'll understand if I keep hoping there's a chance you're wrong. She's testy. She's she's defiant. Yeah. Then we get this this scene that is so vivid in my brain. It's one of these that like always stands out to me in this book. Where as we said, we've quoted it before on this podcast. Yeah, like, several times. We've talked about it because Mister D is just so such an interesting character. Um, obviously he gets blown out of the battle with Typhon, so he's kind of like recovering. I guess he's like recharging his godly juice. Um, at this random arcade in the middle of nowhere because he's just like is that, he's where the party is. I guess that's like his godly thing. Basically, uh, Dionysus, he says, like, the chaos of the Titans will mean the end of Western civilization. The reason we've talked about this before is because in this moment, he, like, describes what is important about Western civilization. And he says, art, law, wine tastings, music, video games, silk shirts, black velvet paintings, all the things that make life worth living will disappear. Bam. Do I know what a black velvet painting is? Still I no. I feel like that's a typo. I that that must be wrong. <laughs> but we but also it. like this is what we've been leading up to. This is what we've been talking about this whole time. Western civilization as parameterized in a very specific way, and I would argue a little uncritically by the books, as we've noted before. Is it all the things that make life worth living? Dionysus says so, and Percy doesn't really question him on it. But um, probably not. Probably not. Just so we're all really clearly on the same page here. I think this is. I think we're all. This is wrong, especially if we're thinking about the context of like. Western art and Western laws. Western damage to the environment. Yeah. Also, video games. <laughs> where, where do you think those video games are coming from? Bitch, Japan. Fucking Japan. Period. <laughs> so that doesn't count. So that's a that's one off of there. Also, music. silk shirts. Where did the silk come from? Also, not Europe. China. Not Greece, certainly. <laughs> so Dionysus is wrong, but it's still kind of nice to see this side of him. Like we know he cares. Again, he has this weird relationship with the half bloods. He says like we actually like again emphasizing the importance role of heroes like we need you guys and the mortals to save olympus because we are just the manifestations of your culture and if you don't care enough to save olympus yourselves we're gonna disappear period it's just like it's a terrible cycle like why is zeus terrible oh because you know western civilization and men are terrible but also why are men terrible because they look to leaders of our country like Zeus, which just then amplify their terribleness, which then just makes the manifestations of our culture even worse. So like, blah, 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 abolish men. Dionysus, Truly. I guess he gives another warning. He's like, the Titans are literally about to like, they're going to power up, you know, they're in their reforming phases. And then once they do that, like you're done. Um, but also he's like, hey, also Percy, can you do me a favor and make sure that my other son doesn't die? Because literally like Dionysus was rocked to his core when his son died at the battle of Camp Half-Blood and he's sad so again with like the gods they care I guess or some of them do not enough but not enough and they're not doing enough about it I don't know they're, they're, like Dionysus like in a lot of ways is like more effective than the other ones of them at actually operationalizing his care for his children in tangible improvements their likelihood of surviving after this like chat with Dionysus that Percy has in a dream vision what is it Dionysus like just zaps him away like he's talking to Annabeth and then Dionysus just like borrows him <laughs> can I steal him for a moment it's like the bachelor <laughs> <laughs> that's a reference we've been missing just a quick second so we're walking around and 
huge important moment. We see Paul's car. Paul and Sally are inside the car because they were driving to Olympus because they knew something was up. Pandora's pethos material, like it basically follows Percy around tempting him when he feels the most hopeless. So like, this is one of those moments where he's like, oh my God, like my parents are fully here in the middle of this battle zone. You know, like they're about to die and I can't save them. But Percy's like basically saying, you know, like, it's cool. I'm chill. Somebody take this pethos away, yep. you know, move the car probably because it's in the line of fire. Yep. They handle that. They take care of that. Really sad moment though. Again, you're 16. You see your parents now asleep. You are literally as alone as it gets. Like you don't even have your mom. Who shows up in this moment? It's Rachel. She is in a crashing helicopter because of course she had a mortal drive her here. And the second they crossed to Manhattan, he fell asleep. This is real Avengers Endgame energy here with like yeah. the <laughs> zooming around of the helicopter. She crash lands. Annabeth steps up to the plate and she, she sees Rachel coming in. And she says, quote, we have to save your friend. Friend is italicized. Yikes. She literally just took a poisoned knife for you. What are you going to say to that, Percy? Huh? Yes. This is the end of chapter 15. We're gonna we're gonna end it here. This to us is a very obvious end point because we're about to enter basically the final stage of the war. Rachel is the harbinger of almost nonstop fighting and a new understanding of what that's gonna look like. So with that, Sammy. <laughs> Sammy, Sammy, Sammy. Sammy. It is time for the final two questions. Question one. Do you believe? <laughs> And I don't, I think you're going to go off here. So, so please do like, don't, don't, no, not on our account. Don't hold back. <laughs> do you believe that Percibeth is the greatest love story ever told? I would say yes and no, just cause like, okay, I love the idea of like friendship, like a successful friendship being the foundation of a successful relationship, because I think that's really important. Like having that trust already established, like that's beautiful. I love that they grow together. That's awesome. And I also love the fact that their relationship, like even though it is like very much, you know, throughout the books, it isn't like the pivotal plot line or anything, which I think really speaks to like the healthy life career relationship balance that people should strive to. That shouldn't be the motivating plot in your life ever, which I really appreciate. They give each other that space. Um, but I will say, I do think it's worth like bringing up the fact that like, I don't think we should over romanticize their relationship in a way. Like I think we villainize characters like Rachel and like Percy to a certain extent, like for getting all cozy with Calypso and he's like flirting with Rachel, like, you know, and it's like Annabeth's doing all this for you and Annabeth's a queen, what are you doing? But also like, I read it in the way, like if I were Percy and every single book without fail, Annabeth has reiterated time and time again, that Luke is like her ultimate. If I were Percy, I was crushing on my best friend. She is not giving me a lot of like indication that she's actually interested. Like it's very like bantery for the most part. And every time, like the siren vision, her taking the sky for Luke, also being more worried about Luke than Percy, like for the most part during that. Battle of the Labyrinth Prophecy. Battle of the Labyrinth Prophecy. Mm -hmm. Like she, time and time again, I don't blame him for feeling a little like, deterred like I would at that point like I'd be like okay obviously you have a lot of things to work through like I honestly don't think she's emotionally available for the majority yeah. of these books and like 
which I think is good that like Rick didn't like kind of waited to like have that really culminate towards like the end where she's finally like kind of like confronting and facing that. If you take what the text explains the relationship as without like filling in all those gaps. It's like, ah, yes, like Percy and Annabeth have to end up together. Like but the text is still her just being like really hung up on Luke, her having to figure that out before she can even think of like exploring something with Percy. So I think she needs to stop simping over her toxic, not ex throughout most of these books, which she does. One more time for the people in the back. That's I'm such glad. a powerful phrase that everyone needs to hear. Stop simping over your toxic non-ex. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that hurt me, but it was something that is correct and that we all need to hear truly like forever um, under patriarchy. Everything about this is true. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So like, I agree that like Percy Beth was definitely like the correct answer in this series and always was, but I think greatest love story of all time like I feel like one that's a very subjective label and two like I feel like we need to take with a grain of salt like step back and be like okay one they were kind of children also like they obviously had a lot of issues to work out that like were kind of independent of their relationship I think that's great and healthy that's awesome you know yes also I think uh, Matsujin Hanadan is the greatest love story of all time. So. <laughs> Iconic. Let it be said. So. Hanori Dango, for those of you at home, yeah. the true boys over flowers. We're not here for Meteor Garden. We're not here for We're boys over flowers, for the Korean adaptation. We're a little bit here for Lee Min Ho. We're like a little bit here for How Lee dare Min you? Ho, but not in this no, context. Not, in boys over flowers. not with that terrible hair. We're not here for not that. In that. Not in that context. I hope you leave some of that in. Stan Hanadon. Kind of, but not really. Like, problematic babe. I guess there's one more question to ask you, Sammy. And that is, you know, as we're approaching the end of this series, we are fighting with everything we have to save Manhattan, Olympus, and Western civilization, which was just so eloquently defined by Mr. D. Do you think it's worth it? I guess it depends what you're, like, considering Western civilization to be. Like, if we're talking about, like, the reign of the gods, then, like, screw that. Like, honestly, the gods are so unnecessary. They always end up using humans as collateral damage. They're misogynistic, irresponsible, racist. Like, they're literally power-tripping messy babies, and they don't deserve to be in charge. So I don't know who made them in charge, but they don't deserve it. So in that case, I don't think it's worth saving the gods. If we're talking about the literal, like, lives, like, obviously, like, I think, you know, saving, like, the the human, like, Hestia, you know, Hestia as the last Olympian, that is what's worth saving, not necessarily, like, the monuments or, like, the power structures, but just kind of, like, the connections and the humanness of it, like, obviously... We're not trying to do mass genocide here. So, like, we should definitely save that. We should save that because the alternative of Kronos is obviously a lot worse. But I don't disagree with the whole, like, burn the system. Because, honestly, the gods have had their time. They've obviously proven that they are the messiest of babies and they don't deserve it. So, yes. Thank you so much, Sammy. You know who's not a messy baby? You. Truly. One of the, the only, only not messy baby on this podcast at this exact moment. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> the highest honor. Assuming that whoever is listening to this episode just listened to either two hours of content or two separate um, episodes based on how we release this. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm so sorry. When we come back, the next time you see us, we're going to be 
literally finishing. I don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to think about it. Um, but it's going to happen. <laughs> Stoked. We'll see you there.